Yes, praise the Lord for his word. We'll be looking at that passage that was just read for us. And so let's have a word of prayer and we'll consider some important truths therein. Oh, Father, we thank you. You are a God that loves us with an everlasting love. And in grace, you have redeemed us from our sin. And you have delivered us from the power of sin, from the penalty of sin. Lord, we look forward to one day being, um, seeing Christ um, and, and, and being delivered from the presence of sin forevermore. Lord, we long that Christ would come. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to be uh, more like you until the day that we see you. And Lord, I pray that you would open our hearts uh, to your word today, that you would speak to us. And I pray, Lord, that you would send your spirit to um, help me as I proclaim your word that the power of the Spirit would rest upon me and on your people, Lord, as they hear the word of God. They too may be filled with the Spirit and strengthened, um, Lord, in their understanding of your word. I pray, Lord, that you would deepen our conviction um, for living a life pleasing in your sight and that you would help us uh, to walk in the Spirit that we might not fulfill the lusts of our flesh. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the title of my message today is Walk the Talk, and that's a common, I don't know how modern that phrase is anymore, but um, it's a common phrase and that we all know, um, and this passage essentially encapsulates that very idea that there is some things that we say uh, that our life needs to match. There are some claims that we make uh, that our lives are to live uh, according to. And so the purpose of John's epistle, it really essentially answers the question, how can I know that I know him? In knowing God is salvation, and this is eternal life, that they might know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. That's John chapter 17. And so to know God is to have fellowship with God, and it is the mark of eternal life. So this epistle uh, really deals with the tests of our fellowship. How do we know that I know Him? How do I know that I know God? And that's probably the most important question that you and I could answer this side of eternity. Uh, John was living in a day where there was a false teaching that you know, was probably more in seed form than developed, and that was called Gnosticism. And Gnosticism, we're unsure about exactly how developed it was in John's time. It was really more of a second century heresy than a first century heresy, but it was there nonetheless. And um, they, they, they essentially had two main views. One was the impurity of matter, that anything that was matter or tangible was impure. That's why they denied that Jesus Christ had come in the flesh or that the Son of God could be manifest in the flesh because how could God take on human form? All matter is impure. But on the other um, side of it, there was also this supremacy of knowledge, that to have this special knowledge of God uh, was really salvation. The idea of being the, having this special enlightenment was essentially what it would mean uh, to have salvation or to, to know God or be to, you know, to have that kind of deliverance. And so there were some people amongst the Gnostics that believed that once you reach this state of enlightenment, you kind of reach this, um, this special knowledge. They kind of had this idea that once you reach that special knowledge, evil can't harm you. And so the enlightened spirit, for that enlightened spirit, it wouldn't matter what he did because his spirit was enlightened. So he could sin with the body but his spirit won't be affected. And there was two extremes. Some went so extreme to be like monks in the mountains, as it were, and very aesthetic. But the other side of it was 
um, some would go on and be licentious and, and basically say there is no uh, laws. And so, you know, this is what John is essentially dealing with this, in this epistle. And he shows that there is an inseparable link between our confession and our conduct. There is an inseparable link between a believer's confession and his conduct, and therefore he deals with that. Now, in verses 12 to 14, we're not going to look at that as we go through this lengthy passage, but I just want to make some, some um, points regarding verses 12 to verse number 14. It's a little bit of a digression, uh, but it's an interesting one. And he says in this six statements of affirmation in verses 12 through to verse 14, and it's all preceded by the words, I am writing to you, or I write to you, and I am writing to you, and I write to you. And he says that about six times. But following those um, statements, he says, I'm writing to you because, he says, your sins are forgiven. I'm writing to you because you know the Father. I'm writing to you because you are strong. And what that teaches us is that John's view of his audience was not that he was essentially... Um, I don't, I don't essentially believe that John really stood in doubt uh, of them as far as he was trying to instruct them and trying to inform them more than correct them. He's trying to instruct them and inform them of false teaching and how it can affect our lives. And so he gives these affirmations which kind of help us understand what John was thinking a little. Um, but there is a present relevance that we have today. You know, in, in, in church history, the old heresy of antinomianism still exists. You say all these big words. Antinomianism means anti-law. That's the idea. This idea that, um, you know, th there is no commandments that you and I uh, ought to follow. We just live according to how we feel and how we please. And don't worry, we've been saved by grace, and so we can live it up and sin as much as we want. Well, Paul deals with that in chapter 6 of Romans. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? No way. May it never be. How can we, who are dead to sin, live any longer in that, in that pathway? And John is essentially dealing uh, with that same idea. And we need to keep in our hearts that check as well, uh, whether or not we fall in this extreme of either legalism, which is on one side of the spectrum, or antinomianism. Antinomianism is against law. Legalism is the establishing of laws that God has not uh, given to us uh, in His Word. And so let's just look at verses 4 to 6 a little. I'm just going to make some observations as we go on. Um, I won't be able to, to dig through every um, passage. We might be here for hours if that was the case. But I will look at verses 4. It says, Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. And look at verse number 6, the beginning part there. Whoever says, he abides in him. And I want you to jump down now to verse number 9 and says, Whoever says, he is in the light and hates his brother, is still in darkness. And so John introduces us to some claims that people make. Whoever says, whoever says, whoever says, whoever says, I know him, whoever says, I abide in him, whoever says, I'm in the light. And so John is dealing with certain claims. People make claims. Christianity is full of claims. We claim um, to, to know God. That's one of the things that I hear in this passage. But beyond that, we say that we're believers in Jesus. We, have, we, we, we claim to be saved. We claim to be born again. We claim to be Christians. We even claim experiences. And, and these things are not wrong to make these claims. We claim experiences that we were, um, you know, I shared my testimony this morning that I was a sinner and at nine years old, the Lord saved me. And I remember the time that that took place in my life. Some people may not remember uh, all the details of that time or even the exact date of that time, and that's fine. But the essential thing is this we remember experiences and we, we make claims 
based upon those things also that, you know, I was saved when I was nine because I remembered something that took place in my understanding and how I called on the Lord, etc. So these are claims that we make and Christianity is full of claims and we could add to that list of all the things that could describe Christians and these are all important terms that we use. However, John is dealing with not just the claims, he's okay with the claims, but what he's trying to do is provide tests to those claims. He's essentially trying to see whether or not the claims are credible. And this is something that we must always be, be careful of, that we do not have, are satisfied with me claims, but that we make sure that there are evidences to claims in our own lives, and even as we are working with others in, in, in the work of the Lord, you know, false teachers were maybe in that church and these men had to, these people in the church had to decide, are these people really the real McCoy? You know, are these, are these people the real deal? Well, they made claims that they knew God. They made claims that they abided in God. They made claims that they walked in the light. But how am I meant to know this? How am I meant to be certain that these people uh, say what they are? And so John uh, then follows to kind of encourage the, the evidence for those claims and he gives two tests. One is a moral test, and another is a social test or a relational test. And the moral test is really found, if you see that in verses 3 and 4, it says there, And by this we know that we have come to know Him, if we keep His commandments. Whoever says, I know Him, but does not keep His commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. That's very strong language that John is employing here, but purposefully. And very importantly, he says, and by this we know that we have come to know him. And here's what he's saying. There ought to be some change in the life. We must be a people that are reflective of those that keep his commandments. There's a change in, in, in the moral conduct of those who say, or not say, those who do know the Lord. And so we keep his commandments. So what about the next one? Look at verse number six. It says there in verse number 6, whoever says he abides in him or is united to Christ, he says, ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Once again, speaking to morality, walking as Christ walked, walking in a way, following in his example, keeping the commandments, following in the examples of Christ. That shows that we have union with Christ, genuine union with the Lord. And then again, verse number 9, it says it there. It says, whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Once again, whoever says he's in the light but walks in darkness is not in the light. And this is a very important thing. It's simple, but it's important. And this is where the social aspect comes in. Our relationship to others also testifies whether or not we have life within our soul whether we are walking in the light. To walk in the light is to walk in love. And this is what he's saying here. Whoever says he walks in the light but hates his brother that does not walk in love, this person actually is in darkness even though he says he is in the light. Do you get that? There's a statement here about light, but then following that, there's a reality and it's darkness. And how do we know what the reality is? Well, he said, look at the behavior of how this individual treats others. He hates his brother. John Chapter 4 goes into this in a lot more detail, but the importance is, is to draw this connection between claims and their credibility. How do we know that the profession of faith that you and I have made is genuine? How do I know uh, that, that, that my profession, my claims are true? Well, there's tests, and they're important tests. 
And so there always must be compatibility between the claim and the conduct. Now, let me just say this. No emotional experience, no level of intellectualism, no kind of mystic transcendence that you and I may feel or experience is, is let me say this, is, speaks more clearly to the fact that we have eternal life but our conduct. So you understand that. No matter what the experience may be, if it is not backed by a change of life, then that experience stands in doubt according to the Scripture. And that's a very important reality that you and I must come to grip with. It's very easy when we experience something or have been convinced of something to, to really depend upon that moment in time, as it were. And, and it's not a bad thing. Like God gives experiences to people. When, when you come to know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you experience a new life and it's amazing. But the reality is that is not the there's test to that. You see that the test is what's important that John's dealing with here. So the experience are good. Worshiping God is a wonderful experience. But the worship of God results in a changed life. The knowledge of God results in a life that is changed, a life that keeps the commandments, a life that loves one another. And these are the tests of genuine fellowship. And so there's always this, 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 must be this compatibility between the claims and the conduct. And no matter the experience, emotional or not, or whatever it may be, the thing that we are looking for is not the experience, but we're looking for the life that follows, the change, the reality of that experience. You know, it's important to, to let me illustrate this, that might be helpful. I don't know about you, but, you know, I, I, we go on road trips, my wife and I, and... Um, we like to drive. We're going to be going down to, to Melbourne in the next few weeks to see family. But I'm the kind of guy that, that is not really good when it comes to directions, right? And um, my wife's the sharp one, you know. She, even though she hasn't got a map in front of her, hasn't looked at the navigator, she just knows something's wrong when we're lost, you know. She just picks up on the, the atmosphere in the car. Um, but I have been um, caught out many times driving, you know, to a destination and, uh, you know, it gets to the point where my wife starts to sense something is wrong. Maybe I've made too many strange turns that don't, you know, aren't, aren't making sense of, 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 of things. You know, this is a bit erratic. He's not driving right. Are you sure you know where you're going, hun? <laughs> and um, at that very moment, uh, I try to convince myself, well, I'm not exactly lost yet. Maybe the navigation will, you know, so maybe I'll get sorted out somehow. No, no, we're, we're fine. I know where I'm going. I know where I'm going. And I'm thinking, okay, I'm sure it's got to be this next turn. Right, and, um, and then, you know, a few moments later, take a few more turns and, you know where you're going, hun? Are you sure you know where you're going? And, um, you know, that's when I have to humble myself and say, look, I, I think we're lost. Okay, I think I'm lost. Uh, but, but my claim, this is what I'm trying to say, my claim to know where I am going, even though I am lost, okay, just because I claim that I know where I'm going, it doesn't change the fact that I am lost, no matter how much I might confidently declare to my wife that I know where I'm going, I know where I'm going, I know where I'm going, the reality of my driving proves to her that I am not, I do not know where I'm going. And the same stands true. I know God. I love God. I, 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 you know, God is everything to me. These are good claims, but they are only as true as the life that is lived in light of them. Do you know where you are going is, a, is an important question, especially in regards to eternal life. But let's continue. I want to look at verses 7 and 8 
because he introduces this idea of a commandment, which is essential to our understanding. In uh, chapter 2, verses 7 to 8, it says, Beloved, I am writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment, and I'm writing to you which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. And this is really interesting. Almost sounds contradictory. I'm writing no new commandment to you but an old one. At the same time, it's a new commandment. Is it new or is it old? That's a fair question. Is it new or is it not old? You're saying in one sense, I'm not writing any new commandment to you, but then you're saying at the same time, at the beginning of verse number 8, it is a new commandment. Well, John's definitely not confused and neither is the Holy Spirit. Okay, This is essentially to un- essential to understand this. The question we want to first ask, though, is what is this commandment? Now, the passage itself doesn't say, I'm writing this commandment to you and this is what it is. But it's answered by the context very clearly. He talks about that in verse 9. Whosoever is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him there is no cause for stumbling. Verse 11, whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness. And so we see very clearly following this that he's writing this commandment and this commandment is the commandment of love. Question, is the commandment of love new or is it old? And the answer is it is both new and it is both old. You see, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, the Jews were to cry out the, the Shema, which is, The Lord our God is one Lord. Deuteronomy 6, 4, and verse 5, And thou shalt love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. This commandment to love God was ingrained in the old covenant. They were to love God. This was important. It's old in that sense. It's not, and it wasn't old to the believers there. They understood that as well. But also, there was a commandment concerning loving our neighbor in the Old Testament, which is Leviticus chapter 19, verse number 15, uh, verse 18. And it says, exactly as Jesus said, you should love your neighbor as yourself. And so here we have an old commandment that is not really that old. So in what sense then is it new? So we understand that it's an old commandment. It is rooted in the Old Testament. These are not things that are being made up by John, but this is something that God has spoken of thousands of years ago and desired for his people to obey. But how is it then new? Well, the word new there is not referring to new in time as in coming into existence. It's actually the word that is interpreted new in relation to qualitively new, or it is something new about this commandment. It is taken on a new emphasis, taken on a new form, taken on a new um, platform, as it were. Now, <clears throat> we know this very clearly from the ministry and life of Jesus. You know, Jesus asked this man, what is the greatest law in the commandment? What is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said that you should love the Lord your God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said exactly, on these two things, depend all the law and the prophets. On these two things hang all the law and the prophets. Jesus was, was in a way, um, showing that love is the fulfilling of the law. He gave a new emphasis. It was new in that sense. Jesus said, I new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another. And then he adds, as I love you. 
It was new in the sense that Jesus had, had taken this commandment and, and of Deuteronomy and Leviticus and put them together, lifted them up and say, you see all the law and the prophets? You can hang them on these. This is it. This is it. If you love God and if you love your neighbor as yourself, you are living a life that is pleasing to God. And the opposite is true. If we fail to love God and we fail to love our neighbor, we're living a life that is not pleasing to God. And Jesus lived a life that embodied this commandment and in a sense gave a new expression to it. You know, the Good Samaritan. You know, Jesus, as it were, showing that he's helping the, the outcasts. Here he is uh, feeding the sick, helping the poor, preaching the good news. Here Jesus is uh, um, um, shaking the community that he is in by love. And here people that hate him, he loves. And here are sinners that reject him, he dies for. And Jesus embodies this love. And Jesus exemplifies this love in a new and fresh way. In fact, he inaugurates a kingdom whose law is love. And this is what Jesus had come to do. He came and he exemplified love manifested in the flesh, as it were. The love of God seen among men in a very new and fresh way, we could say. And therefore, this commandment that he writes to us is, is, is old, yes, but it's not just an old one, it's at the same time a new one. And let me just say, it must remain new in our hearts and remain fresh in our lives. Come with me to John chapter 13, and I want us to see this passage of Scripture. I quoted a part of it, but turn with me to John 13. Keep your finger in First John. John 13, verse 34 to 35. John 13, <clears throat> 34 to 35. He says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. See that there? Just as I have loved you. He sets forth a new example of how love ought to be demonstrated. Right? And then it's, so it's not new in the sense that it just came into existence. But look at verse 35. This goes to back to what we've been talking about, about claims and conduct. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. How? If you have what? Love one for another. What Jesus is essentially saying here is this new commandment is, is, is so essential that is actually going to be the very basis upon which identify, people identify you as believers. When you love God and you love your neighbor, people will say, there goes a disciple of Jesus Christ. When we live out as Christians, little Christ as it were, living out the life, followers of Jesus Christ, living out the life of Christ before a lost and dying world, they will see there goes a Christian. But how would they see that? They would see that because of the love that flows from our lives, the love that flows from our lives. Jesus exemplified it and he says, by this all men know that you are my disciples by your love for one 
another. Go back to 1 John chapter 2 as we draw to a close. I want to see here that there is this emphasis on love, but also there is this battle of the loves. That's very important. Go to chapter 2 of 1 John, verse 15 to verse number 17. It says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. We've been seeing the importance of love, that it embodies the law and the prophets, and it is the new commandment, which is an old one, that you and I ought to uphold as one of the major evidences that we belong to Christ. But there is a war in the soul between the two loves. You see, the Bible teaches us that we are, yes, positively to love the Lord our God with all our hearts, with all our soul, with all our minds, and we are to love our neighbor as ourselves, but there is this other thing that you and I love sometimes, and it's called the world. The world. And we are commanded here to not love the world. Those who have a loving commitment to the world are, are those who do not know the Father. This is what the passage teaches them. He that loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And so in one real sense, we have to understand that, that love is the great stimulus. Love is the great stimulus of all our doings. You always do that which you love most. Remember this. What you love most, you do. When you make a decision, you always make a decision in regards to what you love most. Well, you might say to me, well, no, I often make self-sacrifice for my children. Yeah, that's because you love your children more than you love yourself. So yes, by doing that, you are proving that you love others more than yourself. But we always do that which we love most. And it's important to recognize because the, the life of holiness or the life of living in, 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 in a way that is pleasing to God really has its roots in your affections. It has its roots in what you love, what you prize, what you cherish. Isn't this why Jesus said, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also? Isn't this why Jesus said um, that, that no man can serve two masters? He will, he, will, he will love the one and despise the other or hold fast to the one and he will hate the other. You cannot serve God and money. Isn't this why Jesus said that? You'll find this also a link in Scripture between one's obedience and one's love because we always serve that which we love most. And the Bible very clearly here teaches us, brethren, to love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. And it goes far as to say that if any man loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now, I'm going to have to be very careful as defining what the world is here, because we are told to love one another. So it's not talking about don't love people, okay? Okay, so we love the people of this world. Uh, we are to love the creation. This is God's creation. We are to enjoy the things that God has given us in creation. But when the Bible uses the word world here, what it's talking about is the evil system of corruption of which Satan is the father of. It is those things which go contrary to the work of God. Those things that go contrary, listen, to the law of love. 
You want to see this majorly embodied? You don't see it embodied. We see love embodied in Christ, love for God. But, you know, if you, if you take up any kind of, um, you know, common soap opera or some kind of, uh, you know, uh, movie or film or something, you know, that, that, that is obviously one that isn't pleasing to God, you can really see an embodiment of love for self. The whole philosophy, the whole approach, you know, it's the husband that's too lazy to get up and to help his wife. And it's a, it's a, it's a comedy show, right? We're laughing at the lazy husband. But that husband is displaying self-love, isn't he? He's not displaying a love for his wife. Okay, it's, it's the idea of this, of this child who rebels against his parents and, and it looks funny and it's, and it's all uh, moving because it's not real. But at the same time, what is it teaching? What is it showing? It's showing us the embodiment of self-love, self-desires, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. It's about the man who steps on top of everyone else to get to the top position in his job and he lies and he cheats and he steals. And why does he do this evil? What drives him? Well, it's his love. What for? The world. It's his love for the things of this life. It's his love for the things that are not the things of God. And, and we see that embodied in the society in which we live. We see it everywhere around us. And God says, don't love it. Stay far from it. Keep yourself away from it. Embody the love of Jesus to a lost and dying world. Don't fall for this love of the world. And it says, don't love the world, neither the things in the world. The things in the world are those things that allure us after the world. It talks about it, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, or the, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the mind, eyes, and the pride of life. That the whole system is built upon that foundation. And here we have God's system, God's world of love. And here we have uh, this world and, and, and the corruption of this world. And God's system is built upon the principle of love. And this whole world is built upon self-love. And, and there's a war in our souls as we live in this world, but we are not of this world. And, and, and God calls us out as sinners. He calls us out of the world to live a life that is different from the world around us, that they might see the love of Jesus Christ in us. And the beautiful thing about it is that Jesus does this through the power of his gospel. He comes to men and women who love this world and he shows them his love for them. And as they see the Lord Jesus Christ crucified and risen, their hearts are transformed by the power of his love. And therefore, they no longer love the world. All the things that are in the world, they realize that those things, yes, they give me momentary pleasure, but they lead to destruction. And what do they do? They turn and love the Lord with all their heart, with all their soul, and they love their neighbor as their self. And Jesus says the world should look on to that and say, there goes the disciple of Jesus. You know, if the truth is known, that is not exactly how we always live, is it? And the Bible teaches us in James chapter 4, verse 4, it says, know you not that friendship with the world is enmity against God. For whosoever is a friend of the world is an enemy of, the God, enemy of God. You can't hold the world and Christ in both of your hands. And we have, to make, we have to be decided about this, to recognize that loving God and loving our neighbor is, 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 is much more important than living a life of self-love. We could liken the world to like a house that's on fire. 
and all the things within that house are the things that are part of our makeup and our identity. You know, all our possessions in that burning house. That's our house. It's on fire and it's burning. The Bible talks about it this way. The world is passing away and the lust thereof. Imagine your house as if it was on fire. And all the things that you love and desire and the things that are dear to you are there in that house burning, as it were. And as it's burning, you're in the house. This is exactly what it's like. And God has another house, which is the Father's house, eternal in the heavens. And here God calls sinners out of the burning house. Come out, leave the house, leave it all behind and come follow me. I have a place for you, prepared. I, I, have, I have better things for you, prepared for you. Come out of the house, leave the house. But the Bible teaches us that, that if you and I do not leave the house, if we love the house and the things that are in the house, we will perish with the house. This is what the passage says in verse number um, 17. All, that, all the world is passing away along with its desires. And essentially what it's saying is if you love those desires and love the world, you will pass away with the world and you will not live forever. But look what it says in verse number, number seven, verse 17. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. You see the importance, you see the connection there? Here is a world that is passing away that you and I need to let go of and love God with all of our hearts, with all of our minds, with all of our soul, with all of our strength. And so my final challenge to you, dear brethren, is this. Mark your profession. The question is this. What is it that you say? Whosoever says, I know God, do you claim that? Whosoever says, I abide in Him, do you claim that? Whosoever says, I walk in the light, do you claim that? Mark your claim. Be clear about your claim. Be clear about your profession. What is it that I believe? What is it that I believe that God has done in my life? What is it that I believe about what He's done? And then go on to ask the question, where then is my keeping of the commandments? Where then is my walking in the light? Do I abhor that which is evil? Do I hold to that which is good? Am I a person that shows patience in tribulation and in trials? Am I a person that loves, uh, that has constance in prayer? Am I a person that contributes to the needs of others? Am I just repaying evil for evil? Or am I, am I just avenging myself whenever something goes wrong in my life? Or do I walk in love and do I kindly and sweetly forbear one another? Or am I someone who's full of harsh judgment and cannot handle people that, that cross me the wrong way? The question is, do we walk the talk? We mark our claim, but we have to ask the following questions, don't we? To test the genuineness of our claim. Now, I'm not saying that you and I don't fall into situations and sin. That's not what, what it's saying here. But how is my life marked? What is it marked by? Is it marked by disobedience or is it marked by obedience? When I view my life as a whole, can I testify of the grace of God that has brought change into my life and can I see that working in me? Or is it talk? We're called to walk the talk. We must consider our ways. And finally, we have to ask the question, where is my heart? Where is my treasure? What do I love most? Because what you love most is what you will do most. You know, does the world fascinate you? Do the things of this life fascinate you and enamor you that, to the point that you feel like, I, I, following Christ, I don't want to do this. I just want the world. 
That's a very concerning state to be in, dear people. Examine yourself in regards to that. And let me encourage you, don't love it anymore. Pain and sorrow are mingled with love toward the world. Its momentary pleasure results in pain and suffering. And it will pass away, and you will pass away with it if you do not come out of it and follow the Lord Jesus Christ. So my charge to you is love God, love His commandments. Love one another as Christ has loved you. Do not bicker, do not fight, but exalt the Lord Jesus Christ in your relationships, in your walk, in your homes, in your families. Make Christ the center. Show the world that you love him. Show one another that he is all. Show the world and Christ that you belong to him. Jesus didn't pay the price of sin for nothing. He desires that all who know him would walk the talk. And we must not be deceived. No matter whatever we say, as, as the passages say, we must never forget the scripture that it says, as it is written in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14, without holiness, no man will see the Lord. May God help us to love the Lord with all of our hearts. Let us pray. Oh, dear Father, we know that we are weak. In light of all this confronting Scripture, Lord, we sense the weakness and the frailty of our own hearts. Bear us up, Lord, by your Spirit, and restore unto us the joy of our salvation. Renew a right spirit within us. May we lay our all on the altar. And recognize, Lord, that you are worthy of praise, honor, and glory. For you have redeemed us, Lord, from our sin. And you have bought us with the blood of your precious Son. Lord, may we live a life that is pleasing in your sight, full of love to God and love toward others. Forgive us our sin. Strengthen our hearts, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen.